The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and KUCI.org in Irvine. I'm Lloyd. I'm the engineer and co-host with Mari. And uh, you can find out about our guests and shows at www.KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her expertise. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant. She's the author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She's testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special this year called Protecting Your Privacy in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. To learn more, please visit www.identitytheft.org. So let's get started with a great show tonight. Good evening, Mari. Hi there, Lloyd. We've got a great show is right. We're going to be interviewing a friend of mine who uh, I met about, I guess, about four years ago, and I've been impressed with all of her work for many years. Um, Diane Black is the founder and director of Cal Legislation, which is a Los Angeles and San Diego-based organization with satellite offices in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. She's a strong advocate for victims of domestic violence for over 20 years. Diane has drafted a number of bills that are now incorporated into California state laws mandating victims' access to protective services. And she established Cal Legislation in 1996 to increase public awareness of domestic violence and to uh, the issue of privacy for victims of uh, domestic violence. And she's developed uh, leadership for victims and communities throughout the state. And she has been an advocate for individuals and families whose lives have been impacted by domestic violence. Through her organization, Cal Legislation, Diane continues to shape state legislation and has become a national voice as a representative of California in a network of thousands of organizations dedicated to eliminating, eliminating domestic violence and ensuring privacy not just for victims of domestic violence, but for everyone. And uh, Diane has had a great commitment and vision, which affects thousands of people across this state and, and basically across the nation. So we are so excited to have her with us today. Diane, my friend, are you there? I am. Thank you for having me. Oh, Diane, we're, we're so pleased that you could join us. So let's talk a little bit about your background. I always think it's interesting for people to know how, how people get into this issue of domestic violence and protection and privacy protection. Um, so how did you? Can you share your story of what happened to you, Diane? Yes. It was a series of unfortunate events. It was a divorce from my ex-husband. And through the divorce process, uh, he used a legal tool called Discovery, where he was able to issue massive subpoenas on all my documentation, which was all my financial records, my tax records, my checking accounts, credit card statements. Um, after he, the information was obtained through him, he had access to every vendor, um, Everybody I had contact with, whether it was going to the gym, um, paying at the cleaners, for someone that later turned out to be a stalker, it was a, the best tool that he could use. Everything was handed to him on a plate, and he was able to use the legal system in order to do that. And, you know, Diane, this is really scary. You know, I do a lot of family mediation, and so there is a fiduciary duty in California and in most states that you have to reveal everything. That's right. Your credit reports, which have, you know, sensitive information, as you said, all your financial data, everything about you. They know your social security number. So um, a, a mean ex-spouse or a ven- someone with a vendetta or, or a stalker really has everything that they need. So it is terrifying. Um, so so tell me, what what did you find after you went through this? What you know? What did you seek out to do? You didn't stay a victim, that's for sure. You became a victor, like my book, from victim to victor. So, what did you go plan out to do? 
Well, the first thing I did was I learned from watching what he did on how to protect myself. When he was able to get information from me, I started looking at what information, as an example, was on, were on my check. Um, what information did he have access to? So I kind of, it, it, was a, it was a reverse learning process for me. The first thing I did was try to sanitize the information that was out there on me. And I was public in the community. I did a lot of volunteering. So lots of times your names end up, your names end up on newsletters, on community, on bulletin boards, and later on through the Internet. So what I did was start learning how to clean up, I guess, my own so-called paper trail. And also I become, became very aware of the information I gave out. Uh, after I started that process, I started getting calls from other domestic violence victims, and they were asking me how they can go through the process. So you became an expert by necessity. Absolutely. And, um, and, and so really what you learned was how to reverse all this process and to become privacy conscious, which is what we're trying to do on this show, is, is bring people's level to a consciousness of privacy, which most of us don't even think about, unfortunately. So tell us, what now does Cal Legislation do? We provide resources and information to clients that call privacy concerns. Our assistant starts with a brief interview to find out what the, if the issue is something we can assist with. After the issues are clarified, any issues that we can help with, we do. And the majority of our work is done on the telephone. You know, I, I knew about you, and, you know, recently you know that you and I kind of have a little case together in which one of my clients found out that all of her financial information was sent to um, a prisoner, and this was sent by a bank. I mean, we're talking about credit reports, financial information, everything was sent by mistake to a prisoner who's in prison and who was basically, you know, a, a attempted murder. So um, I thought of you immediately to, to help this person. It isn't just domestic violence persons. Let's think about all the people, besides every one of us who don't want to be stalked, but all the people who, who are, you know, like lawyers. You know, we find out in family law that lawyers are stalked by the uh, opposing party. We find out that uh, judges are worried about getting stalked. Police are worried. Firemen all sorts of, you know, concerns. So, you know, what kinds of privacy concerns do you help with? They cover the, they cover the gamut. Uh, on a professional level, um, I'll have the questions will be asked, how can I maintain a professional life and minimize my profile? When you're a public person, there's a certain amount of you that's going to be out in the public. And with, with, uh, we had a new paparazzi bill in California that was passed. I think it was by Montanez last session. And it's starting to curb some of these, I guess, tracking information on, on high-profile clients, but the bill is for everybody that has an issue with someone stalking them. And the issues that high-profile clients are dealing with for their personal safety is the same issues that domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking victims are doing. Um, I would say the everyday business person is dealing with, and it's pretty frightening right now to read in the newspapers, is there could be a, a case in court that had uh, that the losing party uh, turned around and uh, committed murder. Right. Uh, I mean, this happens all the time, or they, they start filing malicious lawsuits. And so I think it's imperative for everybody, whether it's the issue is their personal safety, it's identity theft, Right. Um, I think it's imperative for the average citizen to be aware of the information we're giving out now, for the information we've already given out and how to clean it up, and how to just think ahead on what information you want to give out just to maintain uh, so-called normal life uh, and keep your privacy, your personal information to a minimum. You know, you're so right, Diane. Like I was thinking, here we are sitting at the University of California campus here, and students, they have to worry about getting stalked by someone, you know, maybe somebody liked them and then no longer, you know, they, they shunned their advances and then they come after them. Or a, a, a professor maybe gave somebody a bad grade and somebody wants to get back at them. I mean, there's so many scary situations that this is not just for domestic violence. This is for, like you said, for anybody and everybody that we have to start thinking about what kind of trails we're leaving in, and especially 
in the information age. Tell us for a little bit about some of the legislation that you have gotten passed to help uh, victims of domestic violence. The first bill was AB 965, and that passed in 1996. Then Assemblywoman Sheila Kuehl had accepted the bill. She introduced the bill for me, and the bill passed. And at that time, what that bill did was it's a pro-per contempt packet, and pro-per means if you're represented without counsel. In other words, if you're representing yourself. Right. I wanted a vehicle in the courts to be available for any citizen to be able to obtain the necessary forms to file a contempt and to get a case heard before the judge uh, for any court order that has been violated. Up until that time, I had volunteered in the court a couple times a year, and I noticed that Women, women in particular, were coming to the court with violated um, court orders or support orders, and they were exasperated. They had no clue on how to how to file a contempt. And since contempt is considered quasi-criminal, generally the family courts did not want to hear a contempt. And when I saw the contempt uh, or the violation of restraining order, it really bothered me because I know that the early um, intervention of, of, of violence I think the chances are going to certainly slow it down or, you know, perhaps minimize it, minimize the chance for it escalating. And so for me, I thought the, t- the tool was very powerful. If someone had a court order and it was violated, for the matter to be addressed before the court as soon as possible. Exactly. And up until that bill passed, uh, there was, it was very difficult to find a lawyer that would file, especially in family court, and that's where you see most of the violations of the court order. And... Uh, I wanted to allow the victim to be able to be empowered by being able to file their own court motion. That was the first bill along the lines of domestic violence that I submitted, and I was thrilled that now Senator Kuehl had accepted the bill. The following years, uh, along the lines of specifically domestic violence, focused was SB 2072. Senator Jackie Spear had accepted that bill. Until that bill passed, it was difficult for victims of violent crime to suppress their Department of Motor Vehicle records. The motor vehicle records, as an example, if you drive a car, chances are you have a vehicle registration file. You also have a driver's license file. And some people may have an identification card file. So that would be three separate files with the Department of Motor Vehicles in California. What I wanted to do was to be to make it easier for victims uh, of crime that needed the suppression of their motor vehicle records, I wanted the time period to be extended and to make it a little bit easier for people applying for the temporary suppression to have their records suppressed. It was real difficult at that time to get the DMV to suppress them. And so a bill was put forward to ease the restrictions and allow an added year, at the time it was one year, of suppression to add another year to extend that. That bill did pass. Then several years later, I kept hearing complaints from people that really needed the record suppression and that were in a state-sanctioned program, uh, the Safe at Home Confidential Address Program, which is administered by the Secretary of State's office. Uh, the partic- enrolled participants are primarily um, domestic violence victims and stalking victims. The 50% of the, of the enrolled participants right now are minors. And what I wanted to do with this bill, with the intention of this bill, was to allow complete suppression for the time that the enrolled participants are in the Safe at Home program to have their motor vehicle records suppressed. I did not want the Department of Motor Vehicles to, that are non-trained domestic violence, are, are violent advocates, to make the determination whether or not the person person should have their records suppressed or not. And for the participants that are in the Safe at Home program, their life has already been threatened. They've already proved to an enrolling agent, usually a domestic violence shelter, that they would continue to be victimized or harmed if their their personal records were not concealed, or, or at least suppressed from the general public. So that bill, uh, AB 20, uh, AB 184, I'm sorry, 
was accepted by Assemblyman Lowenthal, and that bill did pass. You've had, you've had a great record of getting these bills passed. I th- you know, it, it was, uh, I used to feel really lucky, and now I look back at looking at the history. I was very fortunate to have each time have had an incredibly brilliant and responsive legislator each time look at my bills and run with it. Yeah, and you've luck- luckily you've had someone like Jackie Spear, who we interviewed also. Just She's amazing. Yeah, just recently. She's not going to be in the legislature much longer, but she is uh, going to be running for, what is it, um, lieutenant the governor. Lieutenant governor, yeah. governor yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, tell us a little bit more about this Safe at Home program. The program was established, I I don't have the established date, actually. I could that isn't more, that's that not as necessary as long as it's yeah, in it there. Was, it was established by legislation, uh-huh. and it's administered by the Secretary of State, I mentioned. And I'll first give you a quick, the phone number, the contact number for anybody that might need it. Okay. It's 1-877-322-5227. Again, 877-322-5227. 5227. The program is designed to help protect victims of violent crimes and to keep their main address off the basic rolls. As an example, if someone went to file for their driver's license, they went to apply for utilities, uh, get an apartment leased, or even in their insurance, most applications require that you have put, put down your physical address. And People that have already been victimized, that's the last thing they want to do. Up until this, this great safety net of the Safe at Home program, they would use friends' addresses. They would use false addresses. They would do whatever they had to do in order to try to protect themselves, and it was real difficult. And this program is in, was the first, I think, the, one of the landmark pieces of legislation in California to offer this protection. It's a free mail-forwarding address program. So if you, what happens, the process is you go to an enrolling agent, and you can look them up on the website, the Secretary of Website for the Safe at Home Program, and it'll tell you who are the enrolling agents in your, you can put in your zip code, and it'll come up with many different places that you can go to apply for, for entrance into this program. When you go in to see, you have an appointment, and when you see your enrolling agent, that's what they call them, they help you fill out the paperwork. What they do is ask you to show them all documentation you may have on why you need protection. And generally they're looking at, do you have a restraining order? Do you have a violated restraining order? Do you have, even if it's violated, they can still take it. They're looking at police reports. They want to see some hard documentation that you have a strong, that you, for a safety issue for you or your family, you need to be protected. And... Upon presentation of all your documentation to an enrolling agent, they in turn send it on to the Secretary of State's office to the Safe at Home program. It's reviewed a second time. Your information is checked out. And if you're accepted, you're sent an ID card that gives you a Sacramento P.O. Box address. And that is an official state uh, assigned address for you to use in any purpose, whether it's Social Security, whether it's your insurance, Anybody's asking if anyone's asking you for a physical address, and you let them know that you have a PO box, they're going to tell you no. You just show them your card, and they can call the Safe at Home program if there's any question. It's an absolute pro- great program, and it's absolutely free. Oh, that is great. Now, uh, Diane, is it really hard to get into it, and how long does it take usually? I think the process is about after after you finding out about the program. Usually, is the hardest thing uh, to find out about. Uh, most domestic violence providers know about this program, and the Safe at Home program has done marketing, but they're on a limited staffing right now, so that's been a kind of a problem. But with the, a lot of the district attorney's offices know about that. It's people, uh, organizations dealing with crime victims will know about the program. And I can give you one easy website. It's www.ss.ca.gov forward slash safe at home, one word. Again, it's www.ss.ca.gov forward slash safe at home. 
that will give you an overview of what the program is about. And if you have any questions, you can call them. You can also send them an email. But the process after you fill out your application and you show your supporting documentation to an agent and they forward it on, I'm thinking it's about probably about 60, 90 days at the longest, but I've never heard of any application that's taking that long for you to get your card. Yeah. Now, Diane, so it gives you this, this safe address up in Sacramento. Is right. there anything else that it does for you? At the, at the, well, actually what it does is help you begin the recovery of having a normal life. And a lot of people might think, well, don't you just get a P.O. box? It's not that easy. Many victims of crime have spent money, whether it's medical, bills, moving, relocation. They've gone through tremendous economic hardships besides, in addition to all the other hardships they're dealing with. And so to get a P.O. box sometimes might be out of their budget. So for something like this, it's a standardized, safe uh, P.O. box, an address that you could use. And what is nice is, your address that you have is in Sacramento. You can live in San Ysidro, which is right down the border in San Diego, or you can live at the very northern end of California. And if someone pulls a credit report on you, what they're going to see is you have a Sacramento address. They don't know where you live. Oh, that's good. And so that helps you on a personal and a professional level. Yeah, so I would think then all the public records then would reflect this Sacramento address, even if you live in Orange County. Right. They would from then on out. It will be up to the, it's up to the individual to start cleaning up their past tracks if they want to do that. And I would strongly recommend anyone in the program, and I believe the program does that, is recommend that they do clean up their past information. In and, fact, that's, and that's not an easy feat, especially, for example, if there's, you know, court records on you and you've, you know, been through a divorce or... If you've had any kind of lawsuits, those are public records. Right. You know, your birth certificate. Fortunately, we've changed some of the uh, the laws with regard to birth and death certificates so that your Social Security number isn't on there. But, you know, the, we've got paper trails all over the place. Not only do you have, the, you have the past paper trails, you have forward. One thing that you'll find out, and it's generally true, I find working with victims of violence, is that they're going... They're, one of the hard things that they have to do, one of the things they need to do is when they set up their utilities in their phone, they're very afraid to set it up because they don't want to give their real, they don't want, they're so afraid from dealing with the past that if they give their accurate information that somebody might get it as it's happened to them in the past. And so they're afraid to do that. And so the, the Safe at Home program allows them a foundation to start with, but some of the normal things that every, that we all take for granted you, you, you've taken an address to the cleaners and they've ruined your cleaners and you want to file a, or they've lost it and you want to file a small claims suit. You might even have a Sacramento address, but because of the other things they may ask you, you don't want your name sh to show up on court records also on the Internet to show right. that, like suppose your name is Jane Doe, that you, Jane Doe has filed a claim in Los Angeles. And so even though you have a Sacramento address, it's going to tag you that, oh, okay, the person may also live in Los Angeles. Right. That's the venue where you'd file. Right. And so something like filing a lawsuit, it could be an employment lawsuit. It can be anything. People think twice when they've been a victim of violence whether they're going to have full access to the rights that everybody else takes for granted. Exactly. So let's talk, well, let me just mention, in, in case someone just has just come in and started listening, we're talking to Diane Black who is a fabulous privacy uh, consultant and expert, and she's the founder and director of Cal Legislation. And they have satellite offices in Sacramento and Washington and Los Angeles and San Diego. And she's an advocate for victims of domestic violence, but also she is a privacy advocate because even the issues that um, all of us face are the same issues that victims of domestic violence face. So, so let's do this, Diane. Let's talk about some ways that anyone can really lower their profile. Can, can we start with some things that you could help us to know that what we can start doing today? Sure. I, I think one of the, and I tell all the clients I work with, um, the first thing to do when you start thinking, because it sounds like it's, it, the process turns out bigger than you, you've imagined, especially working with identity theft, it's, it's a long process. I advise people to start keep a notebook with them in the car and they're are with them of the everyday things they do. They get up in the morning. They might go to work on the work the way to work. They might stop at the laundry. Okay, the cleaners. Okay, they leave their name, their phone number at the cleaners. Um, they 
go to Starbucks and use their credit card? Right. <laughs> you can use their credit card. I just met a woman the other day that was c- complaining about having, like, um, wondering, do we have to give all this personal information just for a cup of coffee? It's like, no, you have a choice. Right. You can pay cash. <laughs> you cannot do that. But you, there's a lot of everyday things, and I'll go through some of the list of things to think about that that I think every everybody should look twice at. And it's information that you've... We've given out information already, and we can think about what do we want to do to clean it up. Um, these are some of the issues. Um, the first one is, um, I would say, looking at your checkbook. That's pretty basic. I don't write that many checks at all anymore. I just mail a few to. I don't do any banking online at all for my own privacy rights, um, and I write few checks. But when you order checks, this is what I recommend. Um, go to the bank and order your checks. It's not necessary to have your name in your check. Everybody thinks you have to. You don't. You can just have an address, um, just your street address, P.O. box, and your address, and that's all you really need to do. Cash is usually cash to someone receiving it. Um, what I do is when I order my checks, I put my limited information on my checks, and I ask the bank, not to have the checks mailed to whatever to my address. I ask them to hold the checks. So once they get the checks, I go in and pick them up. Smart. And smart. that also keeps it from somebody grabbing your checks, especially for identity theft. Exactly. With all the mail fraud, that's for sure. Oh, that's a huge issue. Right. And, and on the checks, what what I suggest is, and this some of this has has been out in the public for a long time, but I still see it happening, especially with older people. On the check orders, never put your driver's license number, right? your military or social security numbers, on, also your phone numbers on the checks. And a separate issue is an apartment. If you live in an apartment on a condo, you might have a special, you have a condo unit or identifying unit. And this is a short story, but a neighbor of mine is a full-time grad student. He's gone all day and works after school. His wife was getting phone calls couple times spaced out over the period of a couple of weeks, but different times of the day, always asking for her husband. And she, she did, all she said was he wasn't there. So the person calling was really trying to narrow down when, I, I'm assuming, when he was not there. It didn't sound like a personal friend. He really didn't want to leave a message. So they called me, and they asked me what they can do. And I, and I started out when she met me, and I, and I said, can I see your checkbook? And she brought it out. And she had their, their full names on the checkbook, their apartment address with the apartment number on it, and their home phone number, like a lot of people do. And the first thing I recommended was to change that immediately. And I, you know, change it. If you, they wanted their names on their checks, they can go ahead and put that or even put their first initial. Yeah, that's better. And I've done the first initial on my checks for over 20 years. No one has asked me twice why. They've never said anything, even though my driver's license has my full first name. And so, and I never put a telephone number, right, and or any other information. Definitely not a driver's license. And the apartment or unit complex number. A lot of people wonder, well, why not? That's part of our address. If you've written a bad check, the merchant's going to contact your bank, and then it's going to go to a collection agency. They will find you, but you don't need to give that much information to the strangers. You write a check at Target, and um, all of a sudden you're going to go ahead and. Uh, you might be just giving out more information that you, you're going to want on public record. And so the couple was pretty worried about the information, and it was kind of narrowed down uh, to a store that she, the, the wife used to shop at. And so he had, this gentleman had made a couple of advances to, to her, and she kind of recognized the name but wasn't really sure. And she only wrote checks in about three different places. So they were in the process of moving anyway to another state. And so they contacted me again and asked me what to do. So the check situation was already taken care of with all the new information I suggested they, they handle. Also, I let them know when you move, not only get an unlisted number, make sure that your, old, that your old phone number is not forwarded. So for the first month, it was actually forwarded, even though they made a special request. Really? And, we, mm-hmm. and I tested it out. I called them, and I said, by the way, do you know your phone number's out there? And I looked on, did a Google, and on the Internet, there's their new, their new number. So they had to change the number again to do that. Oh, dear. And I also suggested when you do move, do not send out mail forwarding cards from the, from the post office, I mean from the U.S. post office. And the last thing was for them to get a private P.O. box. And so that's what they did in that issue. And then I have a separate side issue. 
one time I dropped off a set of photographs at a at a store, and I worked in collections for a long time, and I rem- I always have a knack for remembering voices. And it was a vacation picture, and somebody had called me and said something. I, I recognized a voice, and they said something about a nice picture. And I just gave me the creeps, and I just and I dropped off the pictures at one store. So I called back, and uh, a woman answered, and I asked if there were any men there, and she said yes because it was a male voice. So she said only one other person working here. He got on the phone, and when he said hello, I knew it was that person. Uh-huh. So I called the store manager, and I asked him, "Would you pull my film, and would you look at it to see if it's been open? Because you can always tell if your film has been open." He called me back and said yes. So I went in to tell him what happened. And he knew it because apparently um, some other people had complained before me. Hmm. So after that, what I learned was, even on my film envelopes, um, my last name is Black, and uh, there's 50 million Bs when you go p- pick up your, <laughs> your envelopes. I use, uh, uh, I use the initial, I could use the initial Z or Q or something that's not used that often, and I take a highlighter highlight across the top that's going to show. I put in, I never put in any real phone numbers. I know my, I can find my own, own, uh, yeah, your envelopes, right, and I have a ticket stub, and so I put in a, my, my uh, alias name, and so I do that for my film, so when you leave it there, you're not giving them all that information, and if you want to check and track your film, you've got your ticket, you can track it. So you see, these are the kinds of things most people wouldn't even think about. Of course, I use my, my digital camera now, and I don't have to worry about oh, it. I do, too, for now, but for all those people that don't, right. it's like, I, you know, you go to Costco, and there's a... Well, you could, you could even do that with your digital film. You could drop it off and say, I want these. You know what I mean? That's so you're right. right. It's the same issue. It's, it's right, and a lot of people think it borders on the area of paranoia. All you have to do is call someone and say something to you, and it's just gives you the chills, and you think, well, maybe that's more information than I want to give out. I know. So some of the information, of course, I've learned um, by, my, by my own experience. Another thing is when you're traveling. Um, I recently booked a tri- uh, couple of airline flights for the holidays, and I noticed I used two different credit cards. Both credit cards showed on the ticket purchase, they showed the, the date it was booked, the passenger name, the date of departures, the cities that I was flying into, and the ticket number. That's enough information to, if they had your base information, which is easy to get a copy of your yeah. of your charge card receipts, right. um, that's enough for someone to change your itinerary or at least know when you're going to be absent from your house. Suppose you live alone. Or um, even if not, someone's going to know that you're not going to be there, and they'll have your exact itinerary. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that this shows up on your credit cards until last week. Uh, another small issue is in luggage, luggage tags also when you're traveling. What I do is I have a generic business card that I made up. All it has is initials on it, and I made it large font so I can uh, pull it out easy. And what I did was put my alias. I have an email address that I use for web surfing for different things, but it's not attached to my personal email. So I have an email address. Inside my luggage, I might put my real name on it, and I'll have the same email address. And so if your luggage is lost, chances are you've already called the airline baggage department to find to track your luggage. They have all your information in the description. But just have your leg. I've been at the, at the uh, rounder where your luggage comes off many times. It's no big deal. You can actually grab anybody's luggage. Exactly. So if you see luggage, a nice-looking set of luggage says Mr. Forbes on the tag, you know, somebody that might be interested in Mr. Forbes might just pull that right off, the, right off the moving conveyor belt. Exactly. So something small like luggage tags, things like that, I would think about. Um, when you're booking hotel and restaurant reservations, again, I use an alias name, and I use lots of times um, restaurants will ask for your, or also hotels, ask for your contact number. If you're trying to keep off the mainstream, give them your cell number. Give them a different give them a different number other than your home number. And again, you can use J Smith. That's pretty generic, uh, and I'm sure many people use that for for reservations. But I'm very careful about that. Also on shuttles, I recently took a flight out of state, and I had used a shuttle once um, at a friend's house. And when I pulled up, they had my my the phone number I'd called from, and they said, "Oh, you are Diane Black," and it just stopped me. 
And I thought, okay, that's another thing to change next time. Um, this is another issue, but this was specifically with um, when you're traveling. Um, hotel deliveries. I went to a huge convention several years ago with my nephew. He was expecting a delivery, and there's a lot of competitors out there. And when they have a convention, usually you have a host hotel that most of the people are staying at. Well, every day he had called and asked for his package. And I think about five days after his package was due, um, both of us went down to the front desk and asked, where's his package? It's supposed to have been delivered. And the concierge said, oh, I remember somebody with your name, but it wasn't you came to get the package. And it surprised us both because we figured it had to be a competitor because he didn't have his name as the hotel guest, but somehow, but the, I think it, one of the delivery services had, had it addressed to him at that hotel. And so what happened was somebody called the front desk and said, asked, do you have any packages in this name? Oh, my goodness. So when the person showed up, they gave him this package, and it happened to be the concierge remembered the person, what they looked like. So when my nephew and I had gone down to see him to discuss this missing package, he said, just two days ago, somebody that was not you, we gave the package to. Oh, my goodness. And this was at a very, you know, four-star hotel. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, this was on a small issue, on an economic issue, it was pretty costly for my nephew on that, and they ended up filing a claim. I was surprised that the hotel didn't seem upset they were going to change things immediately. We had to give him kind of a point by point, this is what you should do in the future. So next time he traveled, um, it was kind of a standard, and he gave this to all of his other company execs. He said, uh, you know, leave the information at the front desk and give it to the concierge that if any packages come in for him or his company, they are to ask for a photo ID and the only person it should be handed to is someone with a photo ID that matched the names he left. That way he can leave his assistant's name on there. But I was surprised this hotel just handed out something worth 20000 to it could have been a competitor. We never found out who got it. Well, you know, Diane, you know, the people, um, you know, in business are not very privacy conscious. And so they don't think to train their bellmen. They don't think to necessarily train their front desk. It's just amazing to me that these kinds of things happen because they're not trained in privacy procedures. That's right. And and so we almost have to be savvy enough to say, look, I'm going to send this to you. You need to call ahead. You need to fax them and say, do not issue to anybody that doesn't give you a photo ID. It's it's almost on you know on our shoulders it is. to protect our privacy, which is basically what you're saying. And let me just repeat again who we're talking to in, in case you just, you know, tuned in to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. We're speaking with my friend and wonderful uh, privacy advocate, Diane Black, and she is the founder and director of Cal Legislation, which has really done a tremendous amount of work as an advocacy for victims of domestic violence, and she's really gone into the issue of privacy because all of us now could become victims of any kind of privacy invasion, whether it be domestic violence or, you know, we have some stature in the community and business or we're students and we're worried about someone who's stalking us. So it, this, this applies to every single one of us to really know how to be much more privacy conscious. So, so you know, tell me a little bit more, but, you know, is it possible to even conduct a fairly public life and maintain a low profile? Yes, I, I've been able to do that. <laughs> Knock on for Micah. <laughs> uh, right. I really think it's possible, but you as, again, you have to be you have to be aware. As th- this is an example. A couple years ago, I was with a f- girlfriend of mine that I had went to high school with, and I was showing her how easy it is to pull up information. At the time, her brother was a labor commissioner, and so we put his name in, and we found property he had in in nearby. And she was stunned that it even showed up. And I thought, especially the labor commissioner, you're not going to want his, his address right on the property rolls that easy. Yeah. And then I put her name in. And um, she attends a lot of uh, community meetings and a lot of meetings through, I think it's HUD. And so she pulled it in, and there was minutes of the meeting, so anybody that wanted to find her could find out through the meetings the days that she attended, when. And it was really surprising. So after that... 
you know, I, I started looking into it because some only one, I've attended many, many public meetings, and my name only had shown up on one docket. And, what, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether you sign in or not. It's who's ever taking the minutes, I assume. So I assume if what I'm gather, thinking is if someone is going, going to be in a public forum, uh, they're going to be aware if they're speaking out, their name, of course, is going to be on there. If you're giving any information, lots of times, even in our local public meetings, they ask you to state your address. So people get up there on TV and they, they state their address, they state where they're from. To me, it's, it's again, a little bit too much information, and I'm not even sure if, if anyone's even asked, do I need to state my address? Can I just say I, I live in Los Angeles? I live right. in Northern California. But that information will be probably on TV and the minutes, but if I, on a professional level, I would ask, is the, if, are the minutes going to be put on the, on the uh, Internet or in, in what kind of form? And if so, do I have any say? Do I, you know, if you're speaking and you're not a member, can you have your member, uh, can you have your name taken off? I had sent a letter in years ago on a, on a city ordinance just as one of many concerned citizens, and I Googled myself and it came up. And yep. so I immediately contacted the webmaster, and this is about six months after the incident. I mean, not six months, six years. And I said, you know, I've become a stalking victim, and I would like my name removed. She did that immediately. The person that sub- when I submitted it to her, I include I, I sent it to her by email. So she printed my email address, and I gave her my contact number, and I wrote unlisted. She wrote unlisted, and my phone number. And my email, personal email oh, address. Gosh. And it never occurred to me that she would put all that in. So, <laughs> so, again, you kind of learn by accident what to do. And so on a public thing, again, I, I should have just mailed it or faxed it in. And I could have done that and uh, put a P.O. box yep. and not put a phone number. And I would be real careful. But when I attend meetings, I do ask, starting from if they have a sign-up sheet, um, to me, I think, uh, when's the last time we've been able to read a doctor's notes or a pharmacy prescription? Well, that's easy. So just go ahead and you can scrawl your name in. <laughs> right. Probably nobody could read it. You yeah. can do that if you need to do a sign-up sheet. If you're with an agency, you can probably put your agency name and maybe just your initials. And the good news for me is no one can read my writing, even if I don't even have to try and scribble. There so. you go. There you, go. <laughs> you don't even have to think about it. So, but, I mean, people put in their, right. their address. You know, I've seen many meetings, and you're looking at the person that signed in before you. You're looking at the list. Right. Sometimes people scan the list to see who else is at the meeting. Right. You want everybody to know that you're at this meeting. Maybe, maybe in a professional setting, you don't want everybody to know where you are. Right. Well, definitely, generally you don't. But they have it, and it's, is it first, is it mandatory that you sign in? And, and who, who has access to this? You don't know. Well, well, definitely the people before and after you, they're going to be standing at the same spot reading the same list. Exactly. And then I noticed on, uh, I've worked a lot with uh, organizations on large events, and they'll send emails, and I'm just still stunned by the emails that I get that will have like 50 email addresses. Instead of blind copying everyone, they will forward an email, or they'll just copy all these people, so one thing, you not only do you have their information, if you want to collect their email list, when you click up the button on some of the servers, you've captured all their email, email addresses at one time. If you want to be a spammer, you've, you've got plenty of e- emails to work with. But I'm still surprised at a lot of organizations that send out email to all the individuals, and it's not blind copied. I know. That and just so amazes me, too. Yeah, that's been a big invasion in that. And also what I see a lot, too, and I still see it, People forward email to each other. So when you go to, not only do you see the email, if you click it on, if it has an attachment, the first time you click it on, you'll see, you might see five or ten email addresses. You click it on sometimes a couple times to keep opening up the attachment. Right, and you get and more and more. And you come up with a, like a hundred email addresses, so everybody has your addresses. Exactly. And so what I do is, if there's something I want to send on, I cut and paste it into a new email. And, you know, the other thing is, Diane, is that this is such an important point that you're bringing up because people don't realize that email is really like a postcard. And, it is. And people can see whatever it is. And I, I had a couple boo-boos that happened to me recently is I, you know, when you're in a hurry to type an email, luckily I never put anything confidential in an email. It might be like, let's change this appointment to such and such. Right. Or I, I can't meet you here, but, you know, we can meet next week or something like that. Or 
this is, you know, I'm sending you something in the mail or whatever. And, um, but I, I typed in the name Dave, and you know when you start to type, it's in your contact box? And I, I did this twice in the last month, and I want to kick myself, is I, I copied, not a blind copy because it was supposed to go to the other person, but it, I typed in the wrong name. I mean, I did Dave, and then right. it came up like Dave Jones instead of Dave Smith. Oh, the automatic, the automatic, and right. I sent it, and then you know, luckily Dave Jones said, "I'm going to." I, you sent this to me by mistake, and I'm going to delete it. Luckily, there wasn't anything confidential, and I just right. wanted to die because here I am talking about privacy. But I think if it could happen to someone like me who tries not to do this, right. it, it can it can happen to anybody. But I want to get back to what you were talking about, you know, keeping a, uh, having a public life and maintaining a low profile. I was thinking today, somebody told me about an attorney, um, and I wanted to look him up. So I immediately went to the State Bar of California website, and you can go and look up any attorney, and it'll say everything about them. You right. know, if they are, if there have been any, um, you know, problems, if they've Discipline. been on probation. And, but, it, you know, it says their phone number, it says their address. Obviously, it's their business address, and they want business. But... You know, there's some people who um, are attorneys who uh, put in their home number because they don't have an office. Instead. Absolutely. And it's, and that is very scary. I don't think they realize what kind of danger. They, they don't. It's very inexpensive to get a, you can just pay for the phone service and get a, a dedicated phone mail phone for that. Right. I mean, it's very, it's, it's really not that expensive to go ahead and think about privacy stuff. Like I have a, a generic business card that I keep in my wallet for myself, and so it has my generic, I call it my generic email account, my generic alias name, my generic phone number. And the phone number is not a home number at all, nor a business number that I normally use. It's an old, actually, pager number. Yeah, I still have one of those pages. I found it out next to, found out that they still have black and white TVs. <laughs> so I use that on purpose because I don't want to give my information out. What happened was I ended up becoming a stalking victim. Uh, by the same person that harassed me many, many years ago, digging out all of my information. And so I had to be extra vigilant in the information that I'd given out, and I wanted, of course, to be consistent. And so it was very easy. I just called it my alias. And so, you know, for, for my own, for, for, for property records, for insurance and for all the basis of the course they have the contact information to you and they still have my P.O. box and they have my sale number as my basic number but as far as any other numbers it's easy I just have like again my generic um, business card just for myself so when people ask me information or want me to give it out if I'm in a public meeting exactly. I, I've already got it set and I don't have to worry about it it's like standing at the checkout and someone's writing a check and they ask what's your phone number Okay, so you're going to blurt out your phone number in front of everybody standing in line. Right. It might be nice if you're trying to get the attention of the person next to you. Right. Maybe, maybe not, but it always just made me cringe when you see a senior citizen giving out all their information out there. It's like, oh, no, don't do that. But that happens all the time. I know, because we have predators out there that we, you know, privacy predators. That's what I call them. They you are. Know, um, uh, there's, you know, that zabasearch.com. Oh, that's frightening. I know. I, some, I had learned about that many months ago, and I went to Zabasearch, and it's changed a little bit now, but it was what would happen is it, it comes up, and you type in your name, and it will pull up your, your home phone number. Now, my home phone number is not listed. Right. And I use my business phone number for everything for contact right. information for everything, and I don't give my home phone number out, yet it had it. And you couldn't just write an email to zappasearch.com right. and take it off. You had to actually write them a letter and specifically ask them. So anybody listening here, th there is still a lot of personal information on people right now at zabasearch, Z-A-B-B-A-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. And when you go there, you can type in your name or type in somebody else's name, and it will pull up a lot of information. So write to them directly and ask them to take it off. The problem is is that we have, and we've talked about this on our show many times, and, and, you know, Diane, you and I have talked about it at meetings recently even, about all these data brokers that are oh, selling our information. They they're are. gathering things from public records they're gathering things from different marketers and and selling our information to everybody and anybody so um let's talk about you know like for example with with choice point and lexis nexus 
you know, if, if you own property, your property files are in there. That's so right. What, you know, what can we do about real and personal property that we own? Is there anything that you suggest to help us get out of these databases? Well, right now, well, right now, I don't know. It's, 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 when, you, when you purchase property, if you purchase it, uh, if, you, if you can buy your property out, you know, out front, up front in cash, you just buy it in the trust. It's no problem. If you're not going to buy your property in trust, the lenders don't want to loan you money, you know, into a trust, and so you're forced to obtain the property in your name or somebody else's name and sign it over. However, there's a paper trail. So even if you get a trust after you initially purchase it, there is somewhat of a paper trail. Uh, the ideal is if you can set up the trust up front, and, you know, you've got the trust set up, but if you can convince a loan... Uh, a lender to do that. It's and they never want to do it. You know, I absolutely have, no. You know, I, no. I have property in a trust and they never will let me put it into the trust. I have to put it into my name and then I have to quit claim it into my trust. Right. And they fight you on that all the time. And if you want to refi, even if your name it's in a trust, you want to refi, right. you've got to go back and forth and so then you're each time you do that. So one of the things that I'm trying to do, I, I'm have several um, specific bills to help um, the safe at home participants for next session uh, is an issue for them is 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 property is their their name they're afraid to put their property in their own name so what they do is they put it in somebody else's if one of the parties dies or there's a disagreement. Um, the, all of a sudden the county is stuck with a, a clouded title. Right. And it, it's horrible. It's a nightmare. And I would like to do it, to be able to have anyone that's already proved to the state that they have been victimized and for that very reason their, their safety is at issue, that they need to keep their records confidential. And by the fact that I'm looking at is the state has already sanctioned a program to provide this protection. We've already extended it by allowing uh, motor vehicle records suppression um, and we also have confidential voting. We have uh, confidential marriages. Since we have other things to protect people and public safety, I would like to see something like that with our property records. I know it's a common question. The property, the assessor's office is asked all the time. They've called me and they said, we have stalking victims call us. What can you do? And, I, you know, other than telling people, you know, you can tell them if you can afford to buy your property in trust, but if it's already in a trust, what do you do? You know, is it going to go in and out? Is your name going to slide? Right. And so the only thing I can do is narrow down the field of participants to start with, and I would like to have the confidential address program participants to be able to um, have their name uh, removed off the rolls. They, they do, some of them, some states will go ahead and leave just the parcel address, the property address. Um, you can also get your insurance company, your homeowner's insurance company, to remove your property address and replace at least your basic bills with your parcel address. Not that that's a big secret, but at least you might even be able to get them to remove part of it. You know, Diane, I'm thinking, kind of brainstorming here with you, and I'm thinking, you know, since these lenders won't allow us to put it in a trust, maybe we should get legislation passed that, that requires that when... Um, you know, that a person can put it into their living trust, that they can actually do that, that they can't deny that. that, that yeah, I think it's discriminatory that they do it that. Is, because it they're is. doing it for, for money purposes. Right, but if they have all the information, right, and then you put it into the living trust and you prove that there's a trust, I, that they, I mean, because every time I've done that, I've had to pass over and send them copies of the trust. I know. And then, you know, then they still have to do so. Maybe we need some legislation like that. And yeah, I, de I definitely think we do. I mean, it, it just seems to me it's if, if, if finances, uh, if the financial aspect of it uh, shadows the public safety, something's wrong here. Exactly. You know, I know I really think that needs to be addressed. And the public records office that I've talked to, the county records, property records, have seen for the last several years very, very um, supportive of some change in that because they're getting questions and they're getting stuck with uh, with clouded titles and they don't know what to do. So it is with the lenders that the issue would have to be drafted right, up. Right, right. So, you know, we, we have about five minutes left. Let's talk about what's needed. We have four minutes left. My, okay. <laughs> my lawyer just told me that. Okay, so what, what other kinds of new legislation is needed to protect privacy, Diane? 
Well, right now, the focus that I've been looking on the privacy is for the high risk, and there were those, those are the people that are already in the confidential address program. And uh, it, would, it would be the property records is definitely one. I would like somebody, if they've been victimized by crime, and not necessarily just in the program, in the Safe at Home program, but to be able to file, if they, if they find a need to, to file a name change, they should be able to file it in the genderless J-Doe. I think they really need to be able to do that because if they file in the original name and then later decide, and through the court process, their name's going to be changed and, it's, and, and that part will be a sealed file, uh, it's easy for anyone to find them originally by looking up where did, where did uh, the plaintiff file in what, what county under their name. And I think that's another important privacy bill. I think the privacy bills I have, I probably have about five, and they're a long list. <laughs> Just tell us kind of real briefly yeah. what, what each one covers. I know you have with regard to um, auto and homeowners insurance. We want to just tell briefly what each one of those is. Well, on the uh, well on the auto, on the as far as the privacy, well, actually on the privacy, it's not necessarily strictly a privacy. Um, there was a bill that Lori Saldana. Assemblywoman Lori Saldana had accepted from me and introduced last session, and it was AB 1640. And property owners, most property owners do not realize that there's a third-party um, database, which is a, it's a, it's a company, one of them is Clue, and another is A+. a plus. And what they do is collect information from, that's submitted by the insurance companies on you. Uh, originally, I thought they were set up to accept just a claim information, but if you call your insurance agent and say, you've got a drip in your kitchen and you're trying to fix it, if it's not fixed, what's the deductible? And, you, and suppose you never file a claim, you're able to fix it, not a problem. It's reported to this third-party database. Most homeowners, most property owners aren't even aware that this third-party database exists. And so what I wanted AB1640 to do was to be able to, it made it mandatory that it's written in the Homeowner Bill of Rights and the insurance companies have to notify the policyholders that this third-party database even exists and you have a right to obtain a copy and this is the information for the contact information. So also that way the policyholder can go ahead and try to clean up or correct any inaccuracies. Yeah. I think it's wrong that they should be allowed to to uh, report inquiries, uh, the, the insurance companies do that because if you're not filing a claim, you're just asking a question, and you're finding out it's going to be docked against you when you're going to get a new policy, and they're basing the underwriters are basing your premiums on that. I think it's wrong. Right, and, and people just don't even know about this. They don't know this exists, and I believe the same thing happens with it with the also with the auto. The other, yeah. er, the other quick areas. Well, you I know what? We're gonna we're gonna have to go. We, would you believe that the time has just flown? So we're gonna have to have you back, and also we're going to have we have your information at kuci.org forward slash privacy piracy, and people can click on and see all the good stuff that you're doing. So we thank you, Diane, and we're going to have to have you back. Can you do that sometime? I would love to. Well, we, we support you in all the wonderful work you do, and we thank you for joining us. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and also KUCI.org. To see our wonderful guests, please go to www.KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. Make sure you listen in every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And next week, you're going to hear us speak with Violet Woodhouse, who is an attorney and a certified financial planner, the author of Divorce and Money. She's going to talk about privacy and divorce. So stay tuned next week at 5 p.m. at Privacy Piracy. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 